World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Shashank Joshi, filling in for Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The preliminary results of Uzbekistan's elections are due today. But don't hold your breath. Shafkat Mirziyoyev, the country's dictator since 2016, is going to win. The question is how far he can take the economic and political reforms he's begun over the last five years. And if you've ever wanted to own a piece of The Economist, here's your chance. Non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, have taken the art world by storm over the past year. We explain why, later today, we're selling one of our covers as an NFT. Get your bids ready. But first... In the EU, it's the digital COVID certificate. In China, it's the vaccination passport. In India, it's called COWIN. A smorgasbord of digital health passes have emerged as governments struggle to contain the spread of COVID-19. They can certify your vaccination record, a recent recovery from COVID, or a negative test result. We propose, subject to parliamentary agreement, that vaccination certification should be introduced later this month. We made a commitment to ensure that there is a national standard for a proof of vaccination certificate. That's why Cabinet has agreed to the use of vaccine certificates. It's a way to help give more certainty and ensure greater safety. In countries such as Israel, vaccine passports have an expiry date. They'll be rescinded if holders don't get a booster shot. But the proliferation of passes presents a compatibility problem. And the COVID pass that gets you into a restaurant might not get you through airport security. The problem and its solution may have a hundred-year-old analogue. During the First World War, lots of governments were introducing lots of different travel documents to control their borders. Avantika Chilkoti is our international correspondent. It created this fragmented system and the League of Nations, which was the precursor to the UN, they stepped in after the armistice and they set around the global standards for what a passport should look like. We now have the same problem emerging with vaccine passports. And what problem is that? The problem is basically just a lack of standardisation. There's a patchwork of different passes around. If you're in the UK, for example, you might have the NHS app, which spits out a QR code. You might get a letter to your house telling you that you're vaccinated. In the US, there's a number of different vaccine passes in use, mostly because Joe Biden's administration has refused to create a national database. As Joe Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, said earlier this year, Americans' privacy and rights should be protected so that these systems are not used against people unfairly. There is a and it's the same story in other countries. And Brazil also has a number of different passes in use. And, you know, none of these are interoperable. Avantika, are these fundamentally incompatible systems that these countries are building? 
So it's pretty interesting. From the outside, these digital health passes look more or less the same. They're just a QR code. But on the back end, QR codes aren't all the same. For one, they don't all include the same information, say the date of birth of the bearer of the vaccine certificate. They also can't all validate one another. You can't use the same verifier app to verify the certificate of someone vaccinated in the UK that you can use for someone, say, vaccinated in California. That causes all kinds of trouble. So imagine at the airport where just across borders, officials are having to look at passengers' testing requirements, vaccine passports, etc. And it's just such a large administrative burden that many airports are currently using the same number of staff they used pre-pandemic, even though traveller numbers have dropped by about 90%. As a result of just how difficult this is, lots of officials actually just eyeball documents rather than actually scanning it. And if you eyeball a QR code, it's really pretty easy to fake. It doesn't really make life much easier having these vaccine passes digitised. So it sounds like there's an opportunity here for some enterprising, authoritative international body to step in and create a universally recognised vaccine passport, just like you said the League of Nations did a century ago. Yes, and this is really an obvious place for the World Health Organization. The WHO has taken the stand that proof of vaccination shouldn't be required for international travel at a time when vaccine distribution is so skewed towards the rich world. As the head of the WHO, Dr Tedros, said earlier this year... It will be a tool to discriminate. It won't help. Uh, But for the future, when vaccine coverage increases globally, it can be considered... And that's why we're helping countries who are working on uh, vaccine passports. So that At the same time, the WHO has published guidance on what exactly a vaccine passport might look like, what kind of information it should include. What it has stopped short of doing is basically working on the validation process of building a trusted record of who can issue a vaccine certificate And there's a reason for that, right? That's an incredibly technical job. It's an incredibly expensive thing to do. And you're going to have to make a lot of politically charged choices. So if the WHO were to do this, they would be deciding big things like which vaccines are acceptable. They would decide what to do about a vaccine certificate issued in Afghanistan or Palestine. They would also have to come up with some sort of enforcement mechanism and punish states that were breaking rules. Okay, so if the WHO is shying away from wading into that politically sensitive fight, is there anyone else having a go at sort of building that kind of register of of setting standards in this patchwork area? So there are a number of different organisations having a go at this. I spoke to one foundation having a go, the UN's International Civil Aviation Organisation. They do it already for passports. They help us verify our electronic passports. So they're trying to have a go with vaccine passports as well. The trouble is, to do this for a vaccine certificate, you need to be A, a well-respected institution, but you also need to be experienced in a number of different fields, in health, in travel, but also just to have an understanding of all the different contexts these passes are being used in, which is hospitals, schools, restaurants, bars. There really isn't one organisation well set up for this. If there's no one organisation that can solve this problem, 
What do you think is the way forward then? There's a number of different solutions being bandied around. There are some technologists who will say they want to create something they're calling adapters. They're basically bits of technology that will convert one pass into another. There's the view of the WHO, which says that countries should sort this out amongst themselves, get bilateral and regional agreements. As far as I'm concerned, this is not a tech problem, this is a policy problem, and neither of those solutions really get at that. You know, perhaps a paper-based system is the way to go. We've had hard copy passports for a century. The WHO's yellow card, which is just a bit of paper signed off by clinicians, we've been using that for decades. And there's not really a sign that paper passes are that much easier to fraud. I spoke to a bunch of people who've been basically posing as buyers on Telegram and on the dark web. And these things are pretty much priced the same. Whether you want to buy a digital health pass or a fake paper one, there doesn't seem to be a premium on it, which suggests that they're all just as easy to forge. And actually, these are going to be much more inclusive. A paper pass, a certificate is something that you don't need a smartphone to look over. You don't need to have a special verifier app. And, you know, you think about the equity issues with these things. Passports created new equalities over the past century. If you're an American citizen, you can travel the world freely. Whereas if you've got an African or an Asian passport, there's going to be lots of visa rules for you to meet. So I just worry that a globally recognized digital health pass could lead to all the same inequalities. Avantika, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 2016. Run with exceptional brutality and incompetence. But despite a lack of democracy, Mr. Mirziyoyev has embraced a surprisingly reformist agenda so far. More difficult challenges lie ahead, though. The election result in Uzbekistan in this presidential election was never in doubt. Joanna Lillis writes about Uzbekistan for The Economist. She spoke to us from its capital, Tashkent. The incumbent Shavkat Mirziyoyev was always going to win. What can you tell me about Shavkat Mirziyoyev? Well, um, Shavkat Mirziyoyev is the president of Uzbekistan now. Before he came to power in 2016, five years ago, he was the prime minister for 14 years in the former regime in Uzbekistan, which was actually one of the most brutal dictatorships in the world. He served that regime under the president then Islam Karimov, who died um, in 2016. Shavkat Mirziyoyev succeeded the president Karimov in a choreographed succession and 
everyone expected that under President Mizioev, it would be much more of the same. And we're talking about some very brutal repressive tactics. We're talking about forced labour being absolutely rampant. And when he came to power very quickly, he surprised his people and uh, the rest of the world too, by embracing a reform agenda and liberalising the country. And is that real reform? How far has it gone? Is it serious? The reform is absolutely real. It's uh, important to point out that the most dynamic reforms have been in the economy. Now, Uzbekistan was uh, always growing very fast, but the economy was absolutely uh, strangled by state control, which remains a big problem. He enacted many dynamic reforms that loosened the control over the economy. And when it comes to political reforms, certainly in terms of media and civil society, he has loosened the screws on, on both of those, and he's encouraged the media to be more bold and not to fear. But still, journalists do operate self-censorship and they do face consequences if they cross red lines in their reporting. And civil society faces enormous pressure um, also. So it's a mixed picture. We have not seen, let's say, the establishment of um, any political opposition to challenge President Misioyev in this election where he's faced only government-approved stalking horses, if you like. Uh, And is everyone in his administration, in his regime, on board with the agenda of opening up economically, politically? Well, it seems not. I mean, the president himself has hinted at this. And certainly my conversations in Tashkent, there is plenty of gossip that there is a pushback against the reforms. I mean, there are vested interests who lose out. One of the main sources of pushback are the security services. Now, under the previous regime, uh, the security services were virtually omnipotent. They controlled all kinds of economic assets, as well as being a tool of repression um, against the people of Uzbekistan. And they were extremely feared, not long after he came to power, Mr. Mezioyev reformed the security services, booted out their longtime boss and um, reigned in their powers. However, we do seem to see resurgence. We see spurious cases against people who speak out. And we also see some spurious uh, treason and espionage cases that have alarmed human rights campaigners. Does his re-election have any implications for the wider Central Asian region as a whole? Well, Mr. Mezioyev has portrayed himself as an engine for regional integration. Central Asia is a region uh, beset by divisions, actually. Many of those divisions actually used to emanate from Uzbekistan itself before he came to power because his predecessor, Islam Karimov, was extremely hostile to all his neighbours and um, regional integration was simply impossible. Since Mr. Mezioyev came to power, he's actually um, embraced a, a policy of good neighbourliness, which has been one of the things that people in in Uzbekistan and, and in other Central Asian countries really credit him for uh, because it's allowed trade, it's allowed people to visit relatives, it's open close borders. So I think for the region as a whole, the re-election of Mr. Mezioyev can only be good news. So it sounds like in the last five years he's been in charge, there have been some signs of change, some real change, but also elements of the old ways reasserting themselves. Where do you see this all headed in the next five years? Well, I think Mr. Mizior talks the talk of helping his people attain a better life. And I think um, economic reform will continue, although, as we've discussed, it will get more difficult. I think tackling some of the endemic cronyism and corruption that remain enormous problems and don't seem to have improved under his five years is going to be a major challenge. As for political reform, it's very hard to imagine Mr. Mizior and those around him accepting the emergence of genuine opposition. So I think there's going to be certainly some challenges 
challenges ahead and it's going to be an interesting five years for Uzbekistan. Joanna, thank you for talking to us. Thank you very much. Last month, The Economist published a cover story looking at the world of decentralized finance. It was an examination of the efforts of various organizations to create a digital economy that runs on blockchains. To understand that world, our US finance correspondent Alice Fullwood immersed herself in it. I mean, really immersed herself. Some might say she fell down a rabbit hole, which is why artist Justin Metz and our designer Graham James decided that the cover ought to be a play on another Alice, Alice in Wonderland. But after publishing the story, we thought, to quote the dodo, that the best way to explain it is to do it. So now we're engaging in what we hope will be a pedagogical exercise for us and maybe for you. So for most of the last month, I have been trying to put together everything The Economist needs for us to issue our first ever NFT or or non-fungible token, which is a little cryptocurrency chit that records records of ownership over a token on a blockchain and is typically linked to a piece of digital media or artwork. Alice Fullwood has emerged from her rabbit hole and she's leading our first ever NFT sale. I've never done this before. The Economist has never done this before. Some other news organisations have, but it was a first project for us. And it transpires that a lot can go wrong. Like what sort of thing? Going into this process, probably quite naively, I thought that it would all be smooth sailing and quite easy to do. And it turns out that actually, having never done something before, there are a lot of questions you need to answer, a lot of things you never even considered that are important to get right. What factors are those? What obstacles did you encounter, Alice? I would group the roadblocks into two bundles. The first bundle is internal roadblocks. So our legal team were extremely interested in this endeavor. They had to sort of determine internally what they really thought an NFT was, which isn't abundantly clear even to people who work in the space a lot. They had to decide sort of any risks that the economists might be taking to sort of issue this token, the biggest of which was that we still don't know whether we'll know who the ultimate buyer of our NFT is and what the problem of their funds is, which exposes us to some risks. There were also sort of tax questions that our finance teams had to sort of brief us on. So will we owe corporation or indirect taxes on these things? There's basically no guidance from any governments on any of those questions. So we're sort of grappling in the dark with those questions. And finally, there's very technical transaction steps that we'll have to take to get the cryptocurrency tokens that we will eventually be paid into The Economist's bank account so that we can donate them to charity. And that requires a lot of setting up of accounts with cryptocurrency brokerages to make that transaction. Okay, that's the first bundle. What's the second? These sort of personal challenges were kind of figuring out what kind of token we should issue. There are different contract templates that you can use to create NFTs. Which platform should we issue our NFT on? There are lots of different platforms. Some of them are exclusive, some are open. Some of them charge very high commission fees, others don't. And going into this world, I really did not know anything near as much as I know now about all of these different kinds of options. So my assumption was, you know, I'd be like, oh, well, I'll just issue an NFT. It turns out picking which token and which platform requires a lot of due diligence. But you figured it out. And now The Economist's first ever NFT sale of its cover, the cover that you wrote for the September 18th issue, is going to go live at 5pm British time today and end 24 hours later 
And Alice, you'll be dissecting the results of that auction, won't you, on our sister podcast, Money Talks, on Wednesday. Yes, I'm very excited to kick off the auction today. That will require me doing a transaction on the Ethereum blockchain once more to list our NFT at five o'clock. And then we'll be able to see live who's bidding, how much they're bidding. And so that will be an exciting 24 hours, I hope, between then and when you next hear from me on Money Talks. Alice, thank you so much. Thanks. To find out more about why we're launching an NFT and how to bid, you can go to foundation.app forward slash at The Economist. All proceeds from the auction, minus taxes, whatever they net out to be, will be donated to The Economist Educational Foundation. It's an independent charity that works with schools and teachers to empower young people to have high-quality discussions about current affairs. So please join us down the rabbit hole. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you'd like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.